0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Damon Linker of the Week, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal. Our special guest this week is Corey Shockey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. And thank you one and all. I'm delighted, Corey, that you could come because we want to talk about what's happening vis-a-vis Iran, a lot of people, it's our first topic, a lot of people were wondering whether Joe Biden as president would resume uh, American participation in the Iran deal, of course, negotiated by his um, the, the man he served as vice president, that would be Barack Obama. Um, so, Corey, I want to come straight to you, but I'm going to, I'm going to set it up this way. Um, Javad Zarif tweeted just today, that he was the Iranian negotiator for the JCPOA. He, he did, he, he issued this tweet. You may have seen it quote, JCPOA cannot be renegotiated period. If 2021 is not 2015, it's not 1945 either. So let's change UN charter and remove the veto. So often abused by us, let's stop posturing, which we both did 2013, 20- Uh, 2003 to 2012, to no avail, and get down to implementing JCPOA, which we both actually signed on to, unquote. Um, So first question for you, Corey, is um, we did both sign on to it. The U.S. pulled out of it under Trump, but Iran is not abiding by it anymore, right?
1: Iran is not abiding by it anymore. Moreover, uh, although President Biden telegraphed that the United States wanted to return to the JCPOA, it's not nearly going to be that easy. You know, the the opaque leadership in Iran is trending even more, um, conservative's not the right word, because I mean it in a pejorative sense when I'm talking about Iran, that they are even more reckless, even more, risk prone, uh, as, as is evidenced by them no longer abiding by the JCPOA. They had put the United States in a terrific position by abiding by it. And so I think we need to answer the question, what do the Iranians think they're doing, having given up the high ground on this? And my answer to it is that they think they can put near term pressure on us to get a better deal than JCPOA, and to get no linkage and no sunset clauses. And that just puts them at a great distance from not just the US, but the other parties to the JCPOA.
0: What's your sense of where the Biden administration is on this? I mean, uh, Joe Biden, uh, the President Biden uh, fired missiles at a uh, Iranian proxy last week. Um, He's, I guess, how do you interpret that?
1: So, um, military analysts, civilian analysts in the Defense Department too, like to—they love the concept of reestablishing deterrence with Iran, and they think that letting ourselves be drawn into these tit-for-tat—they lob some missiles at us, we attack one of their targets—will somehow re- re-establish deterrence. By which they mean. Uh, the Iranians will stop testing us, and I don't think that theory has been proven. In fact, I think it's been conclusively disproven. The Iranians are increasingly aggressive in attacking shipping in international waters, in working to undercut regional governments, uh, and so I I think that's a wrong frame of reference. The Biden administration was probably smart to do it this once to show that uh, they weren't afraid to attack the Iranians, uh, right? Because that was the criticism of the Obama administration, that they were so focused on the nuclear issue, they gave Iran a pass on all these other dangerous behaviors. So I think it was probably useful once, but I really like the perspective of Suzanne Maloney, an Iran expert at Brookings who points out that we shouldn't allow the Iranians to draw us into a bilateral, conventional engagement in the region um, and be bound by multilateral negotiations on the nuclear issue. We should have the other countries that care enough about Iran's behavior to be involved in the nuclear negotiations, fighting side by side with us when we retaliate for this For Iranian conventional or terrorism behavior in the region. I think that's a really smart way to approach it.
0: So let me bring in uh, our panel. Um, Bill Galston, there was an interesting piece that ran in the the Wall Street Journal, where you were also a contributor, uh, by Martin Indick, longtime Middle East hand, um, who basically argued that the Middle East isn't worth it anymore. He raised a number of points that are, I think, you know on a lot of people's minds namely that you know we've been involved in the middle east we've been attempting to extricate ourselves and it's it's not easy but but things have changed i mean the it used to be that the reason we were concerned about the region in general was a oil and b israel and oil has become a lot less important that, that is imported oil has become less important we import oil more from mexico than we do from uh, from Saudi Arabia now. And furthermore, we frack and make a lot of our own oil. Um, and, then, and Israel doesn't seem to be um, as, uh, as in need of protection as in the past, seems pretty strong. So um, what do you make of that argument? Do you think we um, can, should, A, or can extricate ourselves from the Middle East?
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to deflect that question to Corey. Uh, let me, but let me, well, you can,
0: if you want, <laughs> Yeah, but, let me,
2: but I, I will eventually, but, uh, you know, I, I would say, I would say, first of all, and I'm getting to be a nut on this subject, uh, the foreign policy issue that will determine the course of the 21st century has nothing to do with the Middle East. It's China. Mm-hmm. Uh, to which we have given, I think, inadequate attention and to which we are devoting uh, a disproportionately small uh, uh, share of our forces, uh, disproportionate to the threat, certainly, the growing threat. To the extent that there is a trade-off between continuing uh, involvement in the Middle East and increasing involvement in, uh, you know, In the Pacific, I'm in favor of the latter versus the former. Uh, I am a little bit hesitant, however, to pull a full indic and pull the plug, uh, if only because I would need to be persuaded uh, that our allies uh, can be as indifferent from a purely domestic standpoint to the flow of oil as we can afford to be given recent technological developments in the United States. And more generally, uh, whether we are prepared to endure the consequences of serious disruption in the world economy uh, that might attend uh, a breakdown of order in the Middle East after we withdrew entirely, Uh, When the British withdrew 50 years ago, we were there to take their place. If we withdraw, there's nobody. Uh, And that vacuum is going to be filled with people doing things we don't very much like. Uh, I'm also unpersuaded that uh, we can be indifferent to the impact on Israel. Uh, The the Israelis, I believe, are not confident that they can go it alone uh, versus the Iranians without our presence. We have a Navy. They don't. We have capacities that they lack. Uh, and because I think people in the United States are going to be unwilling uh, to reduce our commitment to Israel's security. Uh, and I think they should be unwilling to diminish our commitment to Israel security, frankly. Uh, I think they're going to be very uh, strict limits on our ability to draw down our involvement in the middle East. So that's the, my top of the head thinking for what it's worth.
0: Mm. Um, so, um, so Damon, when, um, when Obama negotiated JCPOA, um, he purposely did not submit it as a treaty to the Senate because he didn't think it could pass. And, um, but what that meant was, um, it was easily, uh, overturned by his successor. It was just an executive agreement. Um, and, uh, and so that's part of the nature of foreign policy, uh, well, of especially foreign policy, but even much of domestic policy these days, when Congress doesn't get involved, um, we have this, this, you know, pendulum swinging kind of wildly. Um, Where do you come out though, on whether, you know, the Biden administration should pursue a, you know, a renewed deal with Iran or just, you know, kind of do the, the more of what, the, Obama, well, the Trump administration was doing, which is apply pressure and uh, see what happens.
3: Yes. You know, this is why I'd much prefer to be a pundit than an actual <laughs> statesman, because, uh, geez, that sounds really hard. Um, I mean, all of it's hard. Everything Corey <laughs> was is. talking about and Bill. I mean, I, I I am perhaps slightly more inclined than Bill to to. Sympathy toward the Martin Indyk position. Um, As you all know, I'm more uh, in that uh, kind of quadrant of uh, international relations thinking in terms of uh, power and realism rather than idealism. And so I'm I'm very much in favor of thinking in terms of, as Bill said, China being the major problem and trying to figure out if it's possible to extricate ourselves from the region. And then the question is, is that advanced by trying to kind of normalize relations with iran back to say uh you know 2015 with the jcpoa or by kind of backing away from any deep involvement beyond issuing kind of realpolitik warnings and and being willing to bomb Iran and its proxies when they act out. And I don't have a strong sense of really which is the best procedure other than being skeptical that reviving the JCPOA, let alone a better deal from our point of view, is at all likely at this point. So I, I suppose that means if you do the algebra in that calculation, that the general approach should be a, of a kind of a Joe Biden version of the Trump approach, given that Trump set us up down and down this path. Um, I do think it's worth, kind of, at the level of geopolitics, to really think through what the implications would be if we backed away, um, given what we've been talking about. For instance, the, the the relative lack of reliance of the United States on Middle Eastern oil at this point, combined with something that hasn't been explicitly talked about—the in much greater reliance of China on Middle Eastern oil. Um, you know, given that fact, we're in the bizarre position of wanting to punish Iran for interfering with international shipping of energy that is primarily energy that's going to our major geopolitical rival, China. So, like, we're we're like policing the the you know the the oceans to make sure China can get its its energy uh, efficiently and cheaply, and that seems bizarre. But I grant uh, Bill's point that you know if. We do back away and China and Russia get more involved and that leads to a much bigger conflict than we have seen there recently that could destabilize the world economy in ways that would hurt hurt us. Quite a bit at a second order level, so it's it's a big old mess, and all I've done is kind of re-describe how messy it really is, without saying what I think at all. Beyond wow, that's hard. <laughs> These are hard problems. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, you know, there's that saying that uh, the the hard problems don't get to the president's desk because they can be solved at a lower level. Right. Uh, but um, Linda, what's what's your view? I mean, Damon makes an excellent point uh, that you know we are um, by. By ensuring energy stability and the free flow of oil from the Middle East, it's mostly to the benefit of uh, of our rivals, not so much to us. Some of our allies, but uh, but our biggest rival for sure.
4: Well, uh, first of all, it's a great opportunity to be the great hardliner that I have always considered myself to be. <laughs> I do not want to withdraw uh, from the Middle East. Uh, I think that would be very. Very unwise, and uh, I think certainly uh, Damon hinted at it. I mean, the problem is China is very involved now, and it's it's been only a little over a year since they signed a pact, a military and trade pact with China, uh, with Iran, uh, and uh, their efforts to get influence in uh, the Middle East, uh, in Africa, uh, even in Latin America, uh, I think is worrisome. And so I don't think we can afford Uh, simply to walk away and think things will take care of themselves. Plus, I think obviously that there are other problems, including uh, the uh, various forms of uh, terrorism that Iran has been involved in that end up uh, causing us problems. And I don't think anybody wants to see a nuclear armed Iran what we do about it, how it is we stop that from happening. I think that's the hard question. That's where I agree with Damon. It's a lot uh, easier to opine on these uh, situations than it is to come up with a conclusion. But something that brings us closer to being able to stop Iran from producing nuclear bombs is something that is very much in the United States interest. And by the way, you know, uh, China might be very happy to see uh, Iran with a nuclear bomb if it um, if its enemy Satan is the United States. So I don't think we can afford to walk away. I think we have to stay involved. I think this is going to be very tough for Biden. And it's particularly tough given the fact that uh, he has uh, made Clear that he's not going to have the kid glove approach to Saudi Arabia that his predecessor did, uh, and that was certainly true with the release uh, last week of the uh, report on the killing of the uh, American-based journalist uh, Khashoggi, uh, who worked for the Washington Post. So this is this is a um, this is a big challenge to this administration. I'm glad they took the action they did. I think. Um, you don't want to ignore these kinds of provocations because you're just going to encourage uh, Iran uh, to have bigger provocations if we ignore uh, some of the smaller ones.
0: Corey, what do you think about this whole subject of, of how much of a priority um, the Middle East, including Iran's pursuit of a nuclear weapon, should be for us?
1: I agree with Bill Gulson that we have, blown it into bigger proportions than it should be, given the other challenges that we're facing, that we have a tendency to over-militarize our response to the problems um, and to um, invest too little in sharing the burden with others on it. And the best thing the Trump administration did was the Abraham Accords, that That recognized and aligned several Gulf states with Israel. I mean, the shock to see the UAE ambassador speaking Hebrew in Jerusalem and <laughs> to see Israeli tourists all over the Gulf is really exciting. That's a, a possibility I think I wasn't creative enough to believe was possible. Um, And it really is sinking its roots. And one of the many advantages of the Abraham Accords is that if you have cooperation between the states of the Gulf and Israel, you have much, much less need for American military involvement to constrain Iran. Because there, um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, a couple of the other Gulf states... Israel, Jordan, they all have a strong common interest in strangling Iran's current abilities to destabilize the region, and they have a lot of capability to do that. So I don't think the trade-offs are quite as stark as they sounded uh, in, in Bill's description, Of diminishing American involvement in the region, because the Trump administration really did set up the United States to be in a position to do less. And the second thing is the depth of the relationship between the United States and the government of Iraq now is in a really good place. And so we have a sustainable relationship there that I. I think the early indications from the Biden administration are that they are rethinking the rapid rush toward the exits, both in Afghanistan and in uh, Iraq slash Syria, in ways that will help stabilize that piece of the equation as well. So I do think um, the possibility exists to be less invested without violating that Chavez Rule of not walking away from the region and acknowledging that we will have continuing interests there that need a stabilizing hand on the tiller, even if they require less military engagement.
0: I think um, we'll move on to our next topic um, because the the first one really is. Uh, a very very long discussion and uh and we could go on all day about it but let i i'm very eager though to get to um this essay well it was a uh, an interview actually that ran this week in New York magazine with David Shore uh who is an election analyst a lefty progressive guy but um who i think presents some data having done a deep dive into the uh, exit polling and the various panels and various other data that have come out, um, since November of 2020. And, um, he comes to some really interesting conclusions. Um, in, so Linda, I'm going to start with you because one of the really interesting data points was that support, which, which we've talked about a little bit in this, uh, on our podcast, but, uh, but he goes into it more that, um, one of the things that cost the Democratic Party dearly in 2020 was that the defund the police and the um, and the socialism argument uh, really hurt among Hispanics. They lost eight uh, to nine percent, and uh, as much as 14 percent in Florida among Hispanic voters um, after the um, defund the police uh, chant started showing up at uh, protests over the summer. Um, and uh, th- they have lost as, as possibly as much as five percentage points among Asians, although the, the jury is still out since so many Asians are from California and they haven't had a chance to fully uh, analyze that data. But uh
4: that, that's absolutely right. And I found this article one of the m- smartest that I have read on the Hispanic vote. And as you know, I've been writing about Hispanics and their politics uh, for over 30 years. Uh, this was a really good analysis. And I think uh, the thing that I found most interesting was the shift uh, over the issue of the civil unrest that we experienced last summer. Uh, and I think we talked in the show that this was going to have uh, an influence on voters. Uh, I think it had an influence on on uh, non-Hispanic whites as well. But Hispanics, I think... Um, often live in those places uh, that were hit by the kind of uh, violence that we saw in some of the demonstrations last year. And I think it hit them hard and uh, they didn't like it. Um, they don't really have the same kind of um, almost uh, visceral reaction to uh, police uh, brutality and violence in their communities that you often see in African-American communities across the country. Uh, Police, I think, are not viewed as warily police that are there to enforce criminal laws as opposed to, for example, immigration laws. Um, And uh, the other aspect that he talked about and was absolutely right was that in Florida, Uh, It's not just the Cuban vote in Florida, but it was uh, the Venezuelan vote um, as well. And uh, that community uh, really did uh, shift um, in in part because of the rhetoric on uh, socialism. I mean, these are communities, I mean, many of these um, communities, uh, Nicaraguans, uh, Venezuelans and others, are... Uh, folks who have come from countries that have real- life experience with what it means to have a socialist in power and many well them- and
0: also let me just interject also the Colombian community a Colombian because, sorry yes because, FARC, because, right, because yes because FARC. they they didn't have they didn't have a, a, a socialist government government in power but they had a, a an insurgency over many years that that's did right damage.
4: yeah that that's right so so I thought it was I thought it was really uh terrific and I thought the analysis was very smart across a variety of issues Uh, not just on the Hispanic vote, but also on uh, some of the cultural issues. He didn't talk about it quite in that way. Mm -hmm. But when you saw that um, more educated whites tend to be actually far more left wing in their points of view, even on things having to do with racial justice than members of Black and and Hispanic communities are, that the kind of... uh, what some of us think is indoctrination that goes on in some of our elite universities across the country has really taken hold. And uh, there are whites uh, on the left who have views of American American society that uh, many in the black and, and Latino community, whatever they may think of the problems of the U.S., uh, won't go as far uh, as, as those uh, on the left.
0: Uh, Damon, uh, I'm, I'm so in love with this interview. I practically wish I could just read it out because it was so interesting, but here's, here's one quote. You respond as you like quote, roughly the same proportion of African-American, Hispanic and white voters identify as conservative. Would you have thought that I wouldn't have? And then he goes on to say, most voters are not liberal. Uh Oh,
3: Right. Um I mean I guess I'm surprised by that um but I shouldn't be since the the rates of people who say they're conservative aren't incredibly high it, it's fairly very roughly distributed higher between,
0: than those who call themselves liberals
3: correct but it's still usually in like the mid 30s so it's not like it's like fifty percent which really- no no would, that's right that's right true. but but uh, but yeah in general I mean I've seen a lot of data over the last year or so showing that um, when it comes to issues of policing and and uh, crime and related issues guns, that uh, white liberals are consistently quite a bit uh, higher in the left uh, the left wing direction than than blacks and Hispanics. And the Blacks and Hispanics are much more often the victim of such crime and the violence. And so that, that creates a very, uh, you know, the setting for lots of interesting and, and bizarre kind of psychologizing about what's going on among white liberals and why they are sort of outdoing uh, the people who kind of have the most skin in the game on this. So it's an interesting question. Uh, I think that I agree that it was a fabulous interview with David Shore, but it's kind of funny. The exact same day that the Shore interview appeared, uh, Matthew Iglesias, whose uh, Substack blog I have plugged before on the podcast, had a very similar complimentary piece that was also yes. very, very good. Yes. And, and it concluded with some concrete suggestions Suggestions about how democrats can more effectively win elections which he claims if you on the left which he includes himself in believe that the contemporary republican party is pathological and poses certain dangers to american democracy because of voter suppression and other things then and corruption and so forth then you should really want to win these elections by the widest possible margins why not do a few simple things and he lists some of them and it's It's funny only because it is so darn obvious. (laughs) So for instance, say you're pro-choice, but you want to go back to safe, legal, and rare. Say you think it's dumb that they're putting warning labels on old TV shows like The Muppets. Just let people watch stuff. Mm -hmm. Say you don't think it's fair to call people racist when they worry about crime or illegal immigration. These are things lots of folks worry about, and the government owes them solutions. And then my favorite in italics especially if you are vice president kamala harris a former elected official from san francisco Say that canceling Abraham Lincoln while keeping the city's schools closed is the kind of dumb crap that makes people think Democrats <laughs> can't govern and you're mad about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. like, and there are others too. It's a great list. And it, again, yeah. it's so obvious, it's kind of almost amusing to <laughs> highlight painful, it. Actually. But it's, <laughs> yeah. But like, notice that. Very few of those things require much of a sacrifice from Democrats on, on large parts of its agenda, what, a, what the party would like to accomplish. It's merely de-escalating the most, uh, polarizing aspects of a certain kind of cultural leftism that really just feeds into, uh, kind of the Trumpist, uh, uh, kind of persona and, and, and uh, agenda, and it and as you see from the David Shore analysis as well, it ended up uh, hurting the Democrats in the election and boosting Trump far more than we might have expected otherwise. So it it seems like a no brainer to me. Uh, Bill, one of the things that about this that really um,
0: almost makes you laugh is that um, you know it must make people like it may it must make ann coulter's head explode to reflect on the fact that that hispanic voters are moving toward the republican party because in part because of immigration issues so here's another quote from the piece in test after test that we've done with hispanic voters talking about immigration commonly sparks backlash Asking voters whether they lean toward Biden and Trump and then emphasizing the Democratic position on immigration often caused Biden's share of support among Latino respondents to decline. Meanwhile, Democratic messaging about investing in schools and jobs tended to move Latino voters away from Trump, unquote. Now, you know, there is a whole section of the Republican Party and conservative media that has been, you know pounding this drum that we have to stop those those Latinos and Hispanics from immigrating to the United States because they're just going to vote Democrat and that's going to be the end of everything.
2: <laughs> I mean, it is ironic, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, so it turns out that both sides of the great Republican contest you know, over the autopsy in, after 2012 were wrong. Exactly. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you know, <laughs> Rance Priebus and company, you know, were right to think that Republicans uh, needed to expand their appeal, particularly to Latinos, uh, but wrong to believe that, in effect, joining forces with Democrats was the only way of doing that. And then the people on the other side, uh, as you say, were dead wrong uh, about about the impact of the immigration issue on on Latinos. So, Go figure. Uh, I think this has been, this has been a big surprise to everyone with the possible exception of Linda, who's been actually studying this group for decades. Uh, but let me, let me pull out another piece of the interview that particularly struck me because it's very consistent with the line of research that I've been pursuing for many years now on the rise of conservative populism in Western democracies. and that is education as the new divider. Uh, And uh, it turns out that education, higher education in particular, college education, not only expands economic opportunities, it also has the effect of putting a quite distinctive cultural stance on people. Uh, The more education you have on average, the less likely you are to endorse traditional or conservative views on social issues, and vice versa. So one of the the big takeaways for me from the Shore piece is that Republicans have a real chance to become a working class party across lines of race and ethnicity. That's less true for African-Americans than it is for other minority groups. But I think this idea of a working class consciousness, as opposed to an upscale educated consciousness, can do a lot of work in political analysis. It does in every other Western democracy. Is it possible that after decades of obsessing about race and ethnicity, that class is about to become you know, important again, dominant again, as a dividing line in American politics. The new, that would be back to the future. The new element is that education is the class marker.
0: Uh, Corey, for, I don't know, decades now, we've been hearing political prognostications based on the idea that we are rapidly becoming a majority minority country, and that this will spell doom for Republicans who rely way too much on on white voters who are a shrinking share of the electorate and so forth. Um, But uh, it's looking like this, as as Bill says, that education is the new dividing line. Um, My question for you is, do you think that the Democrat the people who lead the Democratic Party who tend to be those people with college educations who tend to be much more liberal than the than the population at large are going to be able to compete are they going to be able to get this message
1: I don't see any reason we should believe they're not self-interested enough to get that message <laughs> I mean the genius of the American two-party political system has been the way both parties scrap and morph over time to try and build uh, electoral coalitions. I mean, if you just look over the course, I'm a historian of the 19th century. If you look at the way American political parties swapped substantive positions that were ostensibly the core of their identities, Uh, over the course of 100 years, it has everything to do with people being smart enough to think they had to reposition themselves to be electable. And I don't see any reason to believe that that dynamic will fail us now, um, either on my Republican side of the line, or for my sister's political party.
0: (laughs) Was it always that way when you were growing up that you and your sister were on opposite sides of the uh, political spectrum?
1: No, my sister basically, as she has often said, has my politics when I was 20. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, That's great. Uh, Mona, could I yes. just
0: go uh, ahead. contribute
2: uh, a, brief, a brief reflection on what Corey just said? You're absolutely right, Corey, but here's the problem. Political parties are slow learners. Galston's law is that it takes three consecutive defeats in national elections for a, a an out of step <laughs> and out of touch political party uh, to figure out that it has has a problem. It, it took Labor three defeats, you know, uh, before they uh, you know before they figured out that they had to change in order to beat Margaret Thatcher uh, and the Conservatives. It Took the Democratic Party three painful presidential defeats before it figured out that it had to offer something, you know, different to the voters to get past the Reagan blockade, etc. This is my rule of threes, and it has very broad application. Uh, so, you know, think think of political parties as dinosaurs. Where it takes, you know, if you stimulate its hindquarters, the amount of time it takes the nervous signal to get to the head is much longer than you might
0: believe. Especially if it's one of those dinosaurs with the little tiny brain. There you go. That's that's a political All party. All the
1: dinosaurs had little tiny brains. Okay, Bill. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> for that magnificent simile that will anchor the the Galston rule in my mind ever after <laughs>
2: <laughs> as it was meant to do.
1: <laughs> All right so um,
0: the um, the other thing that's happening right now is this big debate about HR1 and voting rights and this is something that uh, the some Democrats uh, believe is critical to their, Continued viability because looking at 2022, uh, the map looks very bad for Democrats to hold control. Um, since in off year elections, uh, the party in the, that holds the presidency usually loses seats uh, with the razor thin majority that the Democrats currently enjoy, their, the chances of the Republicans taking back power are very good. And so people are saying that H.R. 1, which passed today, I believe, um, is, is the solution. Um, so Linda, um, what do you think of H.R. 1? Is it, uh, it good, bad, ugly? What do you think?
4: Well, I think it's problematic in, in a number of areas. Look, I, there's, there's a real problem in terms of uh, what's happening with voting now. Now you have the Republican Party, not simply attacking rules and parts of the Voting Rights Act, for example, uh, that were based on questionable legal theories, um, one that's sort of arcane to most people, but those of us in the civil rights area know well, is the theory that, you, um, uh, that many on the left have promoted, and that is that anything that results in a disparate impact on uh, minorities uh, is by definition discriminatory. Um, and I have been opposed to that theory for, for many, many years. Uh, and of course, some of the, one of the cases before the courts um, this week uh, was a case in Arizona that um, basically was fighting against that pr- principle of disparate impact. And, w- and what H.R. 1 does is try to overturn uh, the Supreme Court rulings to, um, again, Uh, give more salience to this notion that you have to basically be able to show that you have equal outcomes, not just equal opportunity. So that is, I think, uh, problematic. On the other hand, Republicans uh, are now becoming the party of, we don't really want uh, all Americans to vote. Uh, We want to restrict the franchise, we want to make it more difficult for people to vote, and essentially it's almost like a poll tax, <laughs> They, the, uh, what they're arguing for. They want um, only certain people to vote, uh, those who are uh, well enough uh, organized that, you know, they can get themselves to the polling uh, booth on a Tuesday that, you know, they don't have jobs or other things that interfere. Uh, they want people to take risks, even during the po- time of a pandemic, to vote in person. They don't want to have mail-in balloting. And, and all of that is because it seems to be that the more people who vote and the easier it is to vote, at least if the last election is is uh, any indication, uh, the less chance that Republicans have of winning. So, you know, I think this is going to be... Um, a, an area we're going to see a lot of back and forth on, and uh, I don't think it HR one in its current uh, form uh, has much chance of passing in the Senate. Uh, but this is going to be the the you know civil rights and other um, and political fight of the future.
0: Um, Corey, in years past, I believed that a lot of the claims when, when people objected to voter ID laws and said they were racist, I thought, you know, well, that's, that's not right. I mean, an African American person is every bit as capable of getting an ID as anybody else. So how can it possibly be considered racist? Um, but these days I note that in Georgia, where there was a huge effort organized by Stacey Abrams to get people to the polls. And one of the ways that they got people to the polls was something called Souls to the Polls, where people would, after church, go and vote um, on a Sunday. And what do you know, the Republicans in Georgia have introduced legislation that would would eliminate voting on Sundays. Huh.
1: Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm obviously... Not an expert on voting issues in our country, but it does seem to me the principle should be: we should want everyone to vote, and we should make it easy for people to vote.
0: Right. Um, so, um, uh, Damon, one of the um, one of the things that that HR one does, though, is that it requires. States to um, appoint commissions so that they can uh, appoint that so that they can eliminate partisan gerrymandering, and yeah. that sounds great to me. Except when you look closely at it, there's some
3: problems, right? Well, that actually, I mean, I'd be happy to hear what you think. The problem with that is, of all the things in the grab bag of HR one, that's the part that I think is most defensible. The part that I'm okay. least Enthusiastic about is the stuff about releasing uh, identities of people who donate to PACs and things. Yep. Because I, I think that's a red herring that Democrats fall for every time. And the general trend. Just, uh, can
0: you just explain it
3: before you denounce it? Well, okay, <laughs> sure. I, I suppose I could. Yes. Um, you now, in general, I tend to be. I, I I tend to think that you know people who have the the resources to to spend large sums of money on politics are roughly equally distributed in the country. And so I, I, I don't see that it's kind of a, a class issue at that level where you have kind of, you know, wealthy Republicans like the Koch brothers and they're kind of controlling everything in the country and keeping the left down. That I think is kind of a conspiracy theory and isn't borne out by the facts. And the, the, the fact is that the trend in recent years has been towards small money donations. And they have upended all kinds of expectations in our politics. The Bernie Sanders campaign mm-hmm. in 2016 is the big example. But even, I mean, I mean, Trump is an outlier in every respect, but and it isn't necessarily good that someone can get as far as he did just by virtue of having been famous and on TV a lot. But it does show that the big problem is not donations um, and the level of donations. So I think that that is uh, sort of uh, not not on topic as far as I'm concerned and, and raises all kinds of other potential constitutional issues. Uh, so if that is sufficient as an explanation, I do think that the gerrymandering, the attempt to get gerrymandering under control, I do think is important primarily because um, I think partly by just happenstance, the the partisan swing in the direction of the Republicans in the Senate has become rather dramatic over the last decade, and there's no sign at the moment of that changing that is combined with the electoral college uh swing toward the republicans increasing with every cycle and so you then have two major institutions of american democracy that kind of have their their finger on the scale giving an advantage to republicans and allowing them to win political power while not winning majorities or even pluralities in some cases and so given that fact Um, The fact that the House uh, is often skewed these days toward the Republicans because of the control of state legislatures by the party means that it's extremely important that at least maybe that – uh, institution, the most democratic institution in in American democracy is a little bit closer to the, to the 50 yard line. Uh, and so that is the area where I think it's most important that we get an intervention. Fixing the Senate is nigh on impossible. Um, Uh, And that includes by adding states, which I'm very skeptical of and I thought was, by the way, the weakest part of David Shore's analysis where he he comes down very strongly saying that Democrats should crash through, including getting rid of the filibuster in order to add states on the assumption that they would end up helping the Democrats. That is the kind of um, really hardball politics that I think uh, could backfire and just isn't good in, in its own terms, but I'll stop there.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I'll just um, add uh, the point that I think you, you made an excellent point about the small dollar donors having um, really come into their own in the internet age and are much uh, probably as important as, as the big donors now in terms of um, outcomes. But the other argument that, um, you know, forcing uh, donors to be revealed uh, that people make is that there are times when people want confidentiality when they make a political contribution and it could be a sensitive thing. And, you know, for example, back in the 1960s, there were people who wanted to donate to the NAACP, for example, or somebody, a, a politician who was affiliated with you know, the NAACP and didn't necessarily um, feel comfortable with their name in the paper because there was the real chance of a backlash. And uh, we certainly see that the possibility in our current environment where that, that could be true too. So,
3: Yeah, certainly. Um, and I would just add that the, in the Washington Post this week, uh, a couple of people uh, from the ACLU had an op-ed making that exact point from a left-wing position yeah, again saying right. you know people who want to donate to you know pro-immigration uh, causes that involve helping uh undocumented immigrants often don't want their names attached to that money and so it will could yeah. have a real quashing effect on uh on political contributions across the spectrum in a way that wouldn't be a great thing
0: right right um so bill um you know, I, I I also think that um, nonpartisan redistricting would be a great thing, um, not just for any particular political outcome, but just in general for our civic health. Um, the uh, The polar it, it might begin to blunt to some degree the excessive polarization. I mean, just for example, um, it is it is the case that the House, which is heavily gerrymandered, is far more extreme and, and partisan and crazy than the Senate where, um, you know, senators have to appeal to the whole state and you can't gerrymander a state. So anyway, it's, it's great. The only thing is that this bill, um, you know, this could be worked out in conference if it were ever even had a chance to pass, but the way it's structured, it's kind of heavy handed. Like for example, if, if uh, the state doesn't come up with uh, a uh, commission in the proper amount of time, then it would kick over to a three-judge panel and the panel would then be in charge of drawing the districts. I'm not sure that's even constitutional. And any complaints or challenges would have to be filed in the federal district court in Washington, D.C., not in their local courts.
2: (laughs) Oh, where to begin? Uh, Well, first of all, Mona, uh, I, you know, I think you articulated at the beginning of your conversation with Dana, a radical proposition that could change American politics as we know it. Uh, You said, before you denounce it, explain it. Do you realize what that would do to American political discourse if everybody had to follow that rule? It would shut just about everybody up, except That's maybe just Ezra
0: crazy Kline, enough to work. Right? Just you know, except Ezra
2: Klein, mainly, maybe who can explain you know, everything to anybody. Uh, but look, you know, let me put on my political scientist's hat for a minute. Uh, nonpartisan gerrymandering would do much less. To reduce political polarization than most people imagine for a very simple, sad reason uh, that we've talked a lot about in other connections, namely that people have sorted themselves out geographically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, and you know, that nobody changes county lines, not very often, but the number of supermajority counties, counties that give 60% of or more. Uh, of their uh, of their votes to one political party have doubled as a share of all counties in the past 30 years nobody's changed the boundaries of the states but the red states are much redder than they used to be and the blue states are much bluer and there are many fewer quote unquote swing states i mean i found in 1960 a memorably close election uh 37 out 37 states out of out of the 50 Uh, were settled, could have been settled with a swing of five percentage points or less in one direction or the other, right? Virtually every state was a swing state back then. Uh, So, uh, and you, in order to create truly competitive districts in most states, you would have to gerrymander for competition. You would have to take urban areas and their suburbs and exurbs and turn it into a big pie and cut slices from that pie, right? Which would break up natural neighborhoods and continuity. That might be good. Well, it might be it. It might be good. But the point I'm making is that that given the geographical sorting out that has taken place, in order to have a big impact on competitive districts, creating more swing districts and fewer districts that are in the bag for one party or another, you couldn't just follow natural boundaries, respect, you know, know, communities with a shared history. You would have to gerrymander against the existing geography of the country, not with Mm it.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm
2: -hmm. so that's, you know, so that is, I have many other things to say about the voting issue, but in the interest of time, I'll just, I'll just leave it there. I would be enthusiastic about cramming uh, nonpartisan voting districts down the craws of resisting states if the Constitution permitted it, which is not at all clear to me, uh, if I thought it was going to make the kind of difference that its advocates think it would, but I think the evidence is that it wouldn't.
0: Okay, very very interesting. All right, um let us now turn to our final segment where we highlight or lowlight something from the previous week. Linda, let's start with you.
4: Okay, well, I want to highlight a an op-ed uh in today's, I think it was the New York Times. Um we expect 300,000 fewer births than usual this year. It was a piece uh written by Melissa Kearney and Philip Levine. Uh they are economics professors at University of Maryland and Wellesley College, uh, respectively. Uh, And what it talks about is the effect that COVID and its effect on the economy has had on births this year. And of course, we've had a declining birth rate in the United States now going back uh, more than a decade. And it is actually rather severe and uh, one that uh, is going to impact our economy going forward. And so they came up with the data. It's not complete yet, but it looks like if it stays on trend, that about 300,000 fewer babies will be born uh, during this year. Uh, The first number started coming in in December uh, that we could see the effects of uh, the nine months uh, of people uh, worrying about or being locked down uh, because because of COVID. And one other thing that he uh, that the authors mentioned, which I found interesting, was that one of the reasons that people are having fewer babies is not just their worries about the economy or losing their jobs or uh, what they're going to do for childcare and, and schooling, but because people are not hooking up much uh, during this era, people are not meeting uh, potential partners. There's a lot less sex, apparently, uh, going on, at least uh, between people who are, are already Already not members of uh, of uh, their uh, uh, not having part uh, members of couples. I'm getting my words crossed, and that is in <laughs> the New York Times, by the way, today.
0: Okay, well, can confirm less sex does lead to fewer babies.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Bill, <laughs> uh, I'd like to read. the assembled company, and of course, our faithful listeners, a sequence of numbers. 1.3, 2.0, 3.8, 9.1, 15.9. That is not the sequence of Amazon's quarterly profits over time. That is a sequence of the share of the different cohorts who make up our population who identify as L, G, B, or T. Uh, So for baby boomers, it's 2%. For Gen Zs, it's 16%. These numbers are courtesy of the most recent Gallup survey released yesterday. This raises a fascinating analytical question. Is it the case that... Gen Z is simply revealing a truth that was concealed, you know, or forced into the closet for generations, if not millennia, or is there something about the current culture that leads the youngest adults in our society, those born between 1997 and 2002, uh, to identify, uh, as not straight or heterosexual in numbers that would have been unthinkable previously. I don't have an answer to that question, but this survey sure tees up that question.
0: It does. And I would just add that um, it's a worldwide phenomenon. It's not limited to the United States. Uh, Damon.
3: Well, at at the risk of, uh, I, I guess after Linda's, all of us uh our our, our uh, selections becoming kind of what I read in the New York Times this week, and, and mine mine I think more than anyone's tend to go in that direction. Uh, but I'm going to risk it and go that way anyway because I read a very good essay in the Times Magazine last weekend uh, titled. Kazuo Ishiguro sees what the future is doing to us. Uh, As uh, listeners may know, Ishiguro is uh, the Nobel Prize winning novelist, uh, author of Remains of the Day, and Never Let Me Go. Those are my two favorite novels of his. And he has a new one coming out uh, right about now. I think mine arrived yesterday in the mail titled Clara and the Sun. And this is a a feature, uh, a profile of Ishiguro. uh, And it's very nicely written. Um, I disagreed with some things in it, but it's very thoughtful and worth engaging with. And it, it presents a, a portrait of him as a writer, uh, really struggling very hard to make sense of, uh, of our technological era and uh, kind of observing and trying to grapple with uh, the meaning of human fragility in our time um, and the contours of love and, uh, and other, other things, conflict. So, uh, I recommend, uh, the essay. It was in last Sunday's, uh, New York times magazine. So if you, if you Google Ishiguru and the times magazine, it will come up. The author was, uh, Giles Harvey.
0: Excellent. Um, Corey, do you have something for us? We don't require our guests to do this part of the show, but if you have something you'd like to mention, we'd love to hear it.
1: I do. My AEI colleague, Hal Brands, who writes a column in Bloomberg, did a five-part or six-part series on uh, the allies of the United States who will have crucial decisions to make vis-a-vis China in the coming couple of years and arguing. uh, So Djibouti was one, Uh, Germany was one, India was one, and it raised for me the really important point that we often overlook, which is we take for granted that alliances are one of America's strategic advantages over China, um, and we underestimate how difficult the choice of maintaining or deepening those relationships are going to be. I thought it was a really smart, fresh look at a problem that we tend to assume away. Mm, and that's is that on the AEI website? It is on the AEI website, uh, yes.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Well, it occurs to me only now that I probably should have done my final item in a sort of Dr. Seussian rhyme to uh, pay homage to that story this week, but uh, I didn't think of it in time. So I'm just going to mention um, the uh, piece by James Homan uh, in the Washington Post about Mario Cuomo, a really smart take where he just pointed out that um, Cuomo's flaws, which are very evident in the last few weeks where he's been accused of having, um, having tried to cover up the number of deaths uh, from COVID in his state um, and um, where he is now the subject of several very credible uh, Me Too um, uh, complaints um, and so forth, and he's been accused of bullying by um, one of the Democratic members of the Assembly in New York State, and so forth. Okay, what Holman says is his flaws were not news. I mean, he has been the subject of of uh, ethics investigations in the past, um, but there's there was such an appetite on the part of people on the left and and liberals, you know, people who were anti-Trump to find a hero to use as a foil, to use as contrast to Trump, that they overlooked all of that. And they, and the way he was lionized, the way he was, um, yeah, I think he won an Emmy for his (laughs) press conferences about the COVID virus. Um, you know, it really was an example of people losing their heads and, and thinking, you know, well, we're, we're just going to fall in love with somebody because he's the anti-Trump. And, uh, you know, it's just a good reminder to keep your wits about you and don't don't take anything uh, at face value. And especially, you know, as the old journalism line goes, you know, if your mother tells you the sky is blue, check it. Um, so uh, with that, we thank Corey Shockey, for joining us today. We thank our listeners. Please rate and review us. You can reach me at my, by going onto the bulwark and looking for my work and you'll find my email address, which is out there. And I cannot answer every email, but I do read them all. So we always appreciate feedback, suggestions, even criticisms, if they're kindly put. And thank you all. We will be back next week as every week.